Good morning. I actually looked up the word Corinthianize in the Collins English Dictionary. That's what I got. To Corinthianize means to live a sexually promiscuous life. What it tells us is the city that Paul writes this letter to was awash in sexual immorality. However, Paul learned of a kind of sexual immorality in the church that even offended Corinthian sexual sensibilities. Look with me. What it says, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. He writes, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. For Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? If God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul writes, it's actually reported there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. The term father's wife doesn't refer to one's biological mother. That's not the problem. It refers to a stepmother. So the deal is, has his father's wife indicates a son with an ongoing sexual relationship with the stepmother. So we're, we're to assume. We don't get the details. It's like a one-sided phone conversation. When, you've, when you read these letters, it's like getting one side of a phone conversation. He did what? And you are clapping? Uh, so we have to fill in the blanks. What in the world is going on here? There's a couple of things going on. Uh, we're to assume that after this son's father divorced or died, one of the two, the son entered into a sexual relationship with his stepmother. This is only part of the problem, though. Paul is shocked by the sin, but alarmed by their reaction. What he writes is, and you are arrogant. 
Meaning puffed up. Puffed up. Arrogant. It says, your boasting is not good. So the question becomes, on what basis are they applauding? Um, it appears that this transgression was not simply a problem because it was a sin of passion. Paul cites their being arrogant, literally means puffed up or boasting. This has become, for some reason, a basis of spiritual cockiness. They, it is being justified theologically as the basis of some type of something that they can feel good about. Um, the spiritual aspect of the problem appears to have Jewish roots, because listen to what he says. Do you not know, in verse 6, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um, we don't know the precise nature of the arrogance, but this is clearly Jewish in nature. And so it's logical to assume that at some level it must have Jewish roots. So we have to ask the question then. Again, we don't know exactly what's going on here. We have one half of a conversation. There's details that are lost to us, but we try to put the puzzle together. And what we come up with is there's got to be something with Jewish roots here. We do know that rabbis at the time viewed a new convert to Judaism as reborn. And what that meant in that context is that pre-conversion ties and relations no longer existed after conversion. So you really, it was a new game. You were a new creature. The things that came before were put aside, and so all things have become new. What might have happened is what once might have been regarded as an incestual relationship would no longer have been considered so after conversion. It might well be that this guy became a proselyte of righteousness, became a Jew. And the line between Judaism and Christianity in the early church was very permeable. Christianity was seen to be a sect within Judaism. Judaism and Christianity really didn't split violently and extremely until the end of the 4th century. Up until that time, they kind of intermingled with one another. Could well be that this guy then joins a synagogue, and his pre-conversion activities, relationship, it's not his biological mother, so it was considered to be, no, you're okay, you're in good standing because you've become a Jew, and then this guy then joins the church, and, and then it's kind of passed off, and they felt like, well, you know what, that's right. And it's okay, no matter what we did before, now everything's new, and, and they feel that that's a, a basis upon which to kind of turn a blind eye to what's going on. Uh, again, we don't know precisely the nature of the, the problem, but what we do know is that Paul's reaction is pretty strong. That's what he says. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A couple things we get here to hand this guy over to Satan assumes that Satan serves in some way as God's agent of punishment. To turn him over for the destruction of his flesh seems to indicate death. And how in the world do we understand that? We're going to turn this guy over to Satan, and the assumption is, and different people say different things, to turn him over to Satan means just to kick him out of the church. And it was seen at that time that the church was the place of God, and outside of the church was the place of Satan, the place where you were uh, in trouble, and it could mean that. It seems to be a little stronger than that. It seems to be, this is... He seems to be indicating, hand this guy over to Satan if the power of the Lord Jesus is present. And these are things that existed at the time that I'm not sure we can touch. Well, I'm sure we can't touch. There's things that happened at the juncture of salvation history where the church was birthed and it was moving from Judaism to Christianity. There was some dynamics that existed at that juncture that don't exist today. Um, And it it seems then, again, we don't understand exactly how it works, but it seems what Paul's saying, you know what, when the power of the Lord Jesus is present, we're going to hand this guy over. And when we do so, it's not that he doesn't just get to go to church next Sunday. It's just that he's probably not going to be alive. And how do you get that? But the purpose of this is that if his flesh is destroyed, his spirit will be saved. And again, at some level, that he is going to be okay spiritually. Um, again, there are some dynamics that exist at this juncture in salvation history. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember that story? Uh, they, he, he decides that uh, he sees Barnabas, and Barnabas brings the proceeds of a land sale to Peter's feet and... In fact, when he did so, at some point they gave him a different name. Barnabas means son of encouragement. We don't know what his former name was, but but they see that and they go, "Holy smokes! Look at that! Isn't that great?" They were the early church was was gathered, and Barnabas comes up with with this money and he puts it at the feet of Peter and says, "You know what? I know that the saints in Jerusalem are really having a hard time. You know what? I had some land and I sold it, and here are the proceeds." to the land sale. Peter took this and said, boy, isn't that great, sound of encouragement. Ananias is looking at that thing, and he's going, hmm, geez, I have some land. I can't I can't really part with the land completely. I know what I'll do. I'll sell the land, pocket a little bit of it. I mean, Peter's not going to know. He's not a realtor. He's not going to figure out how much I sold the land for. I'm going to bring the proceeds and I'm going to put it at Peter's feet. And then I'll have a few bucks in my pocket. And also people will give me a high five as I go back down the aisle. And what ended up happening, he he did that. And then Peter ends up saying, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And he drops dead. Drop dead. Again, there's a dynamic that exists at this juncture of salvation history that we don't, it's not replicated today. Thank God. <laughs> um, so, you know, then what ends up happening, Sapphira then, they want to find out if she's going to be in collusion with this as well. She says the same thing, but bam, you know, they go down. That kind of stuff happened at the time. Again, it's a unique juncture in salvation history. 
Um, and something like this happened in Corinth. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. They used to have this love feast. And what the love feast was, it was an opportunity to experience communion and the Lord's Supper, but they made it into a meal. And so what they did, though, is they, they, they talked about where it was. It met in living rooms, you know, so they had these gatherings. And what they did, you know, the Corinthians, they were always into status. So if there was somebody a little bit better off and uh, maybe they had a potluck and they brought really good dishes, what they would say, oh, by the way, you hear, you heard we're celebrating the Lord's Supper at McCoy's. And then if there was somebody they didn't want there, yeah, we're celebrating it sometime. I'm not exactly sure when. And so what ended up happening, then all the people who were the inn people, they all arrived up at McCoy's house and they sloshed on the loggers and, and they, they got blasted. And so, yay, yay, let's celebrate communion. This is great. Um, and so they had this meal and, and what ended up happening, well, I'm not, I'm not indicating that there's, I'm not, this is not a judgment about. So what ended up happening is that the people who did this, they ended up becoming sick and dying. And again, there's dynamics that existed at this juncture of salvation history that are unique to the juncture. Um, Paul doesn't, however, limit his concern to sexual sin. He opens the envelope a little bit. He moves to include greed, theft, idolatry, and drunkenness. Listen to what he says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of, and he expands past sexual immorality. Paul didn't see that as the litmus test for spirituality. He, he opens, look what he says, or guilty of greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, uh, not even to eat with such a one. At this juncture, Paul issues instructions, shun these individuals, shun them, and um, don't even eat with them. Refusing to eat with these individuals uh, breaks all social ties with them, excludes them from the Lord's Supper, um, what's going to happen? Paul's going to go on in this letter to deal with the sins he talked about in this list. He'll talk about sexual immorality in chapters 5 through 7. He'll talk about prostitution. He talks about incest in chapter 5. He'll talk about the greedy in chapter 6. We'll look at it next week, verses 1 through 11. They're bringing one another to court to sue one another, get a buck from one another. He deals with that. Um, he'll talk about the problem of idolatry in chapters 8 through 10. So what he's going to do, he's going to deal with these issues. The drunkard is associated with idolatrous feasts. Drunkards end up showing up in his dealings with the Lord's Supper. So he, he, he talks about issues that are, that are, he's going to deal with in the letter. He will deal with these acts. However, 
He will not deal with these acts from a law-based Mosaic Covenant perspective. Paul, what you'll find, what Paul will do when he gives an imperative, he gives an indicative. An indicative means it's an expression. It says, this is true. That's indicative. This is true. And then the imperative is, therefore, do this. When Paul gives an imperative, he always gives an indicative. And the indicative is not because if you keep or don't keep the commandments, you're going to get blown up. That's never Paul's indicative. Never. So what he says is, like in Ephesians 4.25, you're members of the body of Christ. That's the indicative. Therefore, don't lie to one another. Why shouldn't you lie to one another? Because it's prohibited in the commandments? No, you're members of the body of Christ. Why would a part of the body lie to another part? The hand is injured, and would it say to the foot, no, I'm doing fine. No, you're parts of the body. Then if you're part of the same dynamic, tell the truth to one another. You got the So he commands things, but his commands are always couched in things that pertain to what is true in Christ. Um, Paul deals with these acts, uh, and his chief concern, and you might say, come on, Mike, it is. It really is. His chief concern is to keep them out from under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. He's going to deal with the issues, but he will not deal with it by bringing people back under the commandments and dealing with it from the perspective of old covenant law. Um, You're saying, how do you know that? Well, there are passages in Deuteronomy. Let me read a few. And it talks about what the Old Testament has to say about sexual immorality and drunkenness and idolatry and what the Old Covenant says to do about it. Let me, let me just read these to you. Deuteronomy 22. Um, and it talks about what not to do with a father's wife, which is a stepmother. It says, a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. Okay, what this guy did is out of bounds. It goes on to talk about, in the same context, adultery. So it says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man or woman, in Deuteronomy 17, among you has worshipped other gods, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate. Stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death. But no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hand of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge 
evil from among you. Again, purge the evil from among you is what he says in this context in Corinth. But he's changing what purge the evil among you means. That's probably a good thing, don't you think? Um, he goes on, if a malicious witness, uh, in Deuteronomy 19, 16, if a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at that time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he indented to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. So if somebody appears in a court of law at that time, falsely accuses somebody, and it becomes known, and that person would be guilty of death, the person who gives false testimony is to be killed. All this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. It's instructions. It's, the Mosaic Covenant is not just Ten Commandments. There are 731, and these are some of them. It's telling, it's telling you what to do. You want to live under the Old, command, old Covenant? Want to live under the Old Covenant? You know, some people say, oh, the Old Covenant... The law is just God giving mankind rules so he won't kill himself. That's not true. To live under the old covenant meant that if there was somebody doing something wrong and they were your neighbor, you were going to have to be the one to pick up a stone and throw it at them. What would it be like to live under that kind of pressure? Again, what were you saying? Wait, wait. All we're doing is we're identifying why Paul did not want to people to return to a place that they were under Old Covenant jurisdiction. Do you understand that? Do you get that? It wasn't a great system. It was a supposed-to-be system, but one that was supplanted by the Old Covenant when Jesus comes and dies, gives birth to a... New covenant, that's good news. <laughs> Tell you what, that's good news. And getting people to obey under new covenant and getting people to obey under old covenant are not the same thing. Paul wants to push obedience, but not by returning people under old covenant prescriptions. Another thing, just here's what it says in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him. They had to. And bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, and they're not smiling when they say this, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Do you know what happens next? Can you imagine what happens to this guy next? Certainly they're not going to stone him, are they? They're not going to stone him, are they? 
Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you. Under the old covenant, you're responsible to stone lawbreakers. You can't pick and choose. You know what Paul understands? He's scared to death to put people under old covenant jurisdiction because he understands what it's like. He understands the steep price that's paid if you obey the dot and tittle of the law. He understands what it's like. You know what he did? He understood what it did in his life. As Paul looked in his rearview mirror because of his conformity with law, you know what he could see? The faces of individuals he beat, tortured, and killed. Again, he's not going to go back there. And he's not going to allow the Corinthians to go back there. That's why he's going to talk about issues. But he's not going to allow for this pride in becoming, again, this is ancient Judaism. And it's a little bit different now. He's not going to allow the Corinthians to go under ancient Judaism because you know what that would be? Spiritual suicide. By the way, you cannot marry the old covenant law and Jesus at the same time. It's polygamy. For Paul says you can't be married to the Mosaic covenant and marry Jesus because Jesus reflects the new covenant. You can't marry both. Can't do it. Can't use a fear of judgment to fuel love. Wait a minute. That's not true, is it? The fear of judgment can fuel love, can it? You know what I'd say? Yeah, it can. A love that's narrow and shallow. But you cannot use the fear of judgment to fuel a love that's deep and wide. Can't. You cannot use the fear of judgment to impel somebody to love them. You can get somebody with the fear of judgment to love us, not them, not them. That takes something more. That's why in First John, we looked at it, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears cannot be perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. It's easy to view, as we think of this stuff, it's easy to view sexuality as the problem. You know what Paul does? He disagrees. Sexuality isn't the problem. It's the solution. The problem is spiritual. That's what Paul says. What he says, and there is an article in this. I'm not going to read it, but you might. It explains this passage a little bit, but let me just... um, read what it says. Um, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This passage says something to us that is startling. It tells us there's immorality. God gave them over to immorality. What it means God removed the sexual governor, the moral governor, so that people cannot just say no. No. Here's the question. In this passage, and it's an important question, is immorality the reason for judgment or the result of it? Oh, that's a question. But that can't be a question. Immorality has got to be the reason for judgment. But it says, in the context, immorality is not the reason for judgment. It's the result of it. God gave them over to a mind that can't make good sexual decisions. Okay, if immorality is the result of judgment... What is the reason for judgment? You know what it says in the context? Idolatry. Looking, look look out the window. Look out the window. Looking at that and not believing that God created it. What the Bible indicates is that God communicates something through this and he communicates something through that there's two things God communicates goodness and godness goodness and godness what does God communicate through that what godness you want to see power you want to see Might and awesome. Look at that. God did that. That's a canvas with God's name on it. To look at that and rub God's name out. That's idolatry. How 
could something like this evolve? Again, I, I understand that there are some things to there. I don't believe it's seven little world days. I don't know how it happened. All I know is that this didn't spring into existence by a bang. Can't. Not possible. Okay, if that's where God communicates godness, where does he communicate goodness? Okay, he communicates goodness here. Do you know what it's like to try to listen to God through this and not through that? You ever get a headphone where one side busted? Not quite the same, is it? You know, the stereo effect when you've got one thing that, you know, that the thing's going like this. You know, sometimes I, I have this pair of headphones and I don't know what ended up happening to them, but one thing, it got pulled up and so the thing's dangling out like this. And it's just not quite the same when you listen. You put one headphone in, oh, that's pretty good. But you just don't get much of, you know what I mean? You don't get that. Yeah. No, I don't know what you mean, Mike. You're making this. To try to see God only through the lens of Scripture and not through the lens of creation is not seeing him. There are things that God, when he came down to earth in Christ, gave up some of his godness in Jesus. Again, we see God revealed and what God is and what God's like and what God accepts. We see that clearly. But if you want to see godness, that's where you've got to look. Good. You know what it's, it's been so when you look at when you look at a God, think of it like a pair of binoculars. And look at God through two lenses. Scripture and creation. Those two lenses create you know the way it works with binoculars, you get a vision. That works. And that's what we find here. Um and the problem is, Paul cites, that individuals, when they erase God's name, don't ascribe honor to him. What God does, he says, okay, I'm going to play with some connections, some wiring, and you're not going to be able to make good sexual choices. You are going to be subject to sexual insanity. And that is going to create a context in which maybe you will look back out there in desperation and understand that I am God. Okay, so you know, what we're saying, you say, Mike, what's the point? We tend to think that immorality, again, I'm going to say this again, we tend to think that immorality is what, <laughs> that's the thing that really gets God. You know, I mean, let's be, okay, yeah, be moral, absolutely. But that's not the litmus test here. What, what it what's indicates here, immorality was the result of judgment. Idolatry was the reason for it. So, okay, what does that mean? Um, what does that mean? As although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You say, okay, Mike, what do I need to do to honor him as God? It's a good question, isn't it? How do you honor him as God? That's what I want to tell you to do. Clean up your thoughts about righteousness. 
Clean up your thoughts of a righteousness, where it comes from. Righteousness does not come from you being chaste. It comes from Jesus having sacrificed, installing a new covenant. Does God want you to make good sexual choices? Yes. So that that can be the basis of your righteousness? Good sexual choices as the basis of your righteousness? So God will love you and he'll love you even more if you make good sexual choices? Is that the way it works? That the way it works? Absolutely not. Your acceptance is not based on your sexual choices. It's based on God's choice to install a new covenant. Now, if you believe that, what will happen? You'll love people enough to start making good sexual choices. You'll be able to deal with the tension that lives within. You know what people with addiction will tell you? And it's absolutely true. Those who understand addiction will tell you that it's not a drinking problem. It's a drinking solution. It's not a sexual problem. It's a sexual solution. It's not a gambling problem. It's a gambling solution. If the gambling is used, the sexuality is used, the drinking is used, to do what? To try to clean up the mental riot inside. Where does that come from? I'd say it comes from not honoring God as God or thinking that God blows up people who do this. It's not being clear about righteousness. And people trying to find a basis for security and they, they can't find it because they don't see God clearly. Because of what's been miscommunicated about him. Of course they can't feel secure because chastity is supposed to be the result of security, not the reason for it. Do you understand that? Not the reason for it, the result of it. You understand that God loves you as you are. Ends up sinking in. And you end up not wanting to defraud someone. You end up wanting to make good sexual choices. Again, make good sexual choices. You know somebody described sexuality once? Did I say leave sexuality for marriage? Yeah, I would. I think, again, you say, Mike, I didn't. Okay, fine. Jesus didn't die for people who make good sexual choices. He died for people who didn't. Okay. You say, okay, we're good. So why should I... Why should I mess around? Why should I not mess around? <laughs> Somebody described it this way. I like the illustration. If, if you've ever seen an orchestra tune, it starts with strings, and then woodwinds, and then brass, and then percussion. That's why the, the lighter things first. They tune. Why do they do that? Why don't, why don't per, percussion tune first? Bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum and I'm trying to I'm trying to tune the violin and bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum it doesn't work. You know, somebody's blasting away with the horn and I'm trying to listen to the violin and I can't. You know what the percussion is? Physical intimacy. Bum ba bum ba bum ba bum bum. If that gets charged up, the lighter things can't develop. The words the lighter expressions of love. Bum, ba, bum, bum. It can't tune up, and you end up with love that's not quite as developed. Say, Mike, I've already... Okay, yeah, I get that. You know what I'd say do first? 
Understand that Jesus came to invite you into a relationship with him. You made bad choices. Yeah, okay. Those aren't the basis of righteousness. You know what I want to tell us? Clean up your thinking about righteousness. And once we do that, things start to, things start to happen. Um, somebody said, I, I like the... Righteousness is rooted in believing. You don't have to be a Christian to be chaste. There's expressions of religion where they're very chaste. They don't believe in Jesus. Um, the root of righteousness is believing. And the fruit of righteousness, it doesn't lead toward behaving. See, the problem is when you deal with it, and then I'm going to be done. The bar that God sets, so you know, it's not set at deeds. It's set at desires. Now, you might be able to control some deeds, but you can't control your thoughts. Guess what? Coveting is a sin. That's why if we live under the commandments, coveting is a sin. You don't, even know, you don't have to control your actions. You have to control your thoughts. Not possible. Uh, coveting is a sin. If you're going to make a passing grade with respect to commandment, maybe you have to control your thoughts. Controlling sin with law, by the way, is like controlling a grease fire with water. Tell you what, you try to stamp out behavior issues by using the fear of judgment, you know what's going to happen? It's going to do what water does for a grease fire. It's going to go, you say, no, it doesn't, Mike. Self-righteousness is a sin. Self-righteousness is a problem. It's the sin the Pharisees were guilty of that Jesus couldn't crack. Jesus had no problem with the Pharisees. He had no problem with the prostitute. Most demoniacs, you know what Jesus couldn't crack? A self-righteous Pharisee. They were immune to his stuff. Don't go in that direction. Let's clean up our thoughts about righteousness and... um, As we do so, it will move us towards that place where the sense of being loved will echo in a love for self and a love for others. Love is an echo of his love for us. We're going to close with a closing thought. Come on up, Devin. Let me give you something to think about. Just stay in an attitude of prayer. Um, if you made bad choices and you're living in the shadow of them, you feel cut off from God. Um, what he says is the new covenant. He is helios, gracious, benevolent, favorable to our unrighteousnesses, and he remembers our sin no more. What confession means to say what God says about that sin. So here's what it means. That thing that you did, that thing you saw, that thing you looked at, that magazine you read, that thing, here's what Jesus, in the name of the Father, would say to you. I am still in you, and I am still with you, and good still ahead of you, guaranteed. Could you remember that? That's what confession means, saying what God says. 
what he says to you, I am still in you, and I am still with you, and good still ahead of you, guaranteed. Can you remember that? When you think of what you did, I'd like you to remember it. You tell him, thanks that you're still in me. Thanks that you're still with me. Thanks that good is still ahead of me. Guaranteed. God, I thank you for salvation and what it means. Would you help us to believe it? Would you help us to make room for it in our thoughts and our minds so that we can embrace you and that you can teach us how to love ourselves, you, and others? In Jesus' name, amen.